You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here in October of 2022 with episode 430 of The Corbett Report podcast, The Media Are the Terrorists. As controversial as that statement may be with Joe Q. Normie out there, I would venture to guess that most of the people in my audience would not find that statement to be at all contentious. In fact, we can probably all think of some examples off the top of our heads of media pundits and personalities essentially being terrorists and terrorizing the public. Here are just a few that occur to me off the top of my head. We see these beautiful pictures at night from the decks of these two U.S. Navy vessels in the eastern Mediterranean. I am tempted to quote the great Leonard Cohen. I'm guided by the beauty of our weapons. Um, and they are beautiful pictures of, uh, of fearsome armaments making what is for them a brief flight over to this airfield. You think your legislation would have a realistic chance of passing the Senate or the House, and if it did, do you think the President of the United States would sign it into law? He would presumably veto it. At the very least, it begins the debate of whether or not we should be at war. We are refueling the Saudi bombers, so we are essentially part of the bombing campaign. We're helping them choose targets, and we are refueling the Saudi bombers that are dropping the bombs. It is said that thousands of civilians have died in Yemen because of this. So for you, this is a moral issue because you know there's a lot of jobs at stake. Certainly, uh, if uh, a lot of these defense contractors stop selling uh, warplanes, other sophisticated equipment to Saudi Arabia, they're gonna, there's going to be a, a, a significant loss of jobs and revenue here in the United States. That's secondary from your standpoint. And if you want to find a way to create a sanction, find a way to be able to reprogram their missiles through cyber uh, terrorism. Yes, as I say, I probably don't have to go too far out on a limb with the Corbett Report regulars to convince them that the media are in fact the terrorists, not only indirectly by, of course, reporting and repeating essentially the terroristic threats of the terrorists in government and elsewhere that are seeking to terrorize the public to keep them in the fear state so that they are more malleable and controllable, but also directly um, by actively advocating for terrorism, talking about terrorism, making terrorism uh, possible, essentially. But it goes even deeper than that, because it isn't even just about what they say but the medium through which they are saying it, as those who have begun to explore the media matrix will know by now, it is the, the media affects us on a much more fundamental level than we like to think, because we are conscious and intelligent and rational agents who come up with our own ideas. And yes, we might take information in through the media, but it doesn't really affect us. Or does it? Well, uh, one piece of information that might strike back against that idea that the media doesn't really affect us on a deep level is something called the Werther effect, which you will probably more likely know uh, by its more common appellation these days, the copycat effect. And this is a well-documented, 
well-studied phenomenon that goes back at the very least centuries, if not millennia, but at any rate centuries, has been identified as a phenomenon by which a, a report or even a fictional account in enough detail of a suicide uh, can lead to clusters of copycat suicides uh, in the future. And not just suicides, although that is where we derive the name the Werther effect from at any rate. More on this very interesting phenomenon and its history can be garnered from this very interesting and I would say important read, The Copycat Effect, How the Media and Popular Culture Trigger the Mayhem in Tomorrow's Headlines by Lauren Coleman. And hopefully that name is familiar to you and hopefully even this book is familiar to you, but if not, fret not, the uh, the actual uh, uh, book link will be in the show notes at, of course, the show notes for today's episode at corporatereport.com slash media terror. Uh, but let's let's get into this in a little bit more detail, just about the the background, the historical background of this phenomenon. Uh, very early on in the book, Lauren Coleman writes that sociologists studying the media and the cultural contagion of suicidal behaviors were the first to recognize the copycat effect. In 1974, University of California at San Diego sociologist David B. P. Phillips coined the phrase Werther effect to describe the copycat phenomenon. The name Werther comes from the 1774 novel The Sorrows of Young Werther by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, uh, the author of Faust. In the story, the youthful character Werther falls in love with a woman who is promised to another. Always melodramatic, Werther decides that his life cannot go on and that his love is lost. He then dresses in boots, a blue coat, and a yellow vest, sits at his desk with an open book, and, literally at the eleventh hour, shoots himself. In the years that followed, throughout Europe, so many young men shot themselves while dressed as Werther and seated at their writing desks with an open copy of The Sorrows of Young Werther in front of them that the book was banned in Italy, Germany, and Denmark. Though an awareness of this phenomenon has been around for centuries, Phillips was the first to conduct formal studies suggesting that the Werther effect was indeed a reality, that massive media attention and the retelling of the specific details of a suicide, or in some cases, untimely deaths, could increase the number of suicides. And uh, as Coleman goes on to document in this book, in chapter after chapter, there are many, 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 many examples of this. As I say, of course, there is this uh, well-documented, I think at this point well-understood, suicide cluster copycat effect that um, takes place. But as Coleman points out, it takes place in a lot of different ways. Not just suicides uh, copycat effect, but then murder suicides or rampages, going postal when that was coined as a term by and used in the media. Suddenly you had all these events of people going postal, specifically postal workers, uh, it, not just in the United States, but in other English-speaking countries where that term was employed in the media. Um, he talks about the uh, some rather obscure things that you've probably forgotten about. Apparently in, I believe it was early 2002, there was the alligators are going to eat you craze uh, that was sweeping uh, media in Florida at that time based on precisely two incidents. Of course, we can all think back to the summer of Jaws. Oh, when Jaws was released and everyone was deathly afraid that they were going to be attacked by a shark every time they went in the water. And that became a media uh, hysteria phenomenon. Here was one that 
uh, was interesting reading about it in Coleman's book because I had almost forgotten about it. But do you remember the biggest story in the world in October of 2002? Well, October of 2002? What was going on? Oh, right, the DC Sniper. And I can say the biggest story in the world because I remember vividly being in Dublin uh, at the time. And every day that was in the news and everyone was talking about it. Are they going to catch this sniper guy? Who even remembers the DC sniper at this point? Maybe maybe interesting for a future investigation. But um, the point was that in that in that window, when that was the media phenomenon, and that was the thing that the media was talking about all the time, you started to get sniper attacks, not only in various places throughout the United States. Remember when people in West Virginia and elsewhere were being gunned down at gas stations and things? But also uh, in in other countries. Um, in London, uh, there was a sniper attack, and when they caught the guy, it was oh, I you know I was basing it on the DC sniper uh, story. Uh, there was a sniping attack in Turkey that again was blamed at any rate on well, I saw it in the media about the, what was happening in Washington, so I tried to do the same thing. Um, I, again, this is this is not a controversial phenomenon. It is incredibly well studied and well documented at this point. And if you search the literature in the sociology journals. There are many, many different uh, uh, articles and studies about this, and statistical studies as well. This is not a figment of imagination or pattern recognition. This is a statistically documentable phenomenon. And it says something important about media and its relation to society, its role in bringing information to society, its responsibility in bringing that information to society, and also for, uh, let's not be naive here, it's not as if the media is not aware of this phenomenon or its responsibility in reporting on things, and yet they do it anyway. Hmm, what does that say? Well, I, I had the chance to talk about all of this, this swirl of interesting information and uh, uh, surrounding this phenomenon with the author of The Copycat Effect, Lauren Coleman, back in 2012 uh, in Corporate Report Radio episode number 182 uh, that was recorded directly in the wake of the 2012 shooting at the movie theater in Aurora, Colorado, at the premiere of The Dark Knight Rises, when there was a lot of attention being put on that and the possibility of copycat shootings taking place, and some of them, there there was one, for example, in Maine that took place that I found out during the break uh, while recording this episode of Corbett Report Radio that, oh, actually, uh, not only had Lauren Coleman been... Uh, been to see The Dark Knight Rises after having written that Heath felt this would probably spark a shooting. He wrote that before the shooting took place. But he went to see the uh, the movie at, at the exact precise theater where I think just a few days later there was someone who was arrested with uh, multiple weapons and uh, thousands of rounds of ammunition who was going to do a copycat shooting. So again, quite an interesting conversation. I would exhort you to listen to it in its entirety, but let's just listen to a bit of the conversation where we hone in on this question of the media's role in reporting on events like these. Well, what, what we've got going on, of course, is that uh, these suicidal, homicidal, vulnerable individuals uh, very much are a blank slate. And if uh, it's been proven over and over again in research that some of these individuals literally sit in front of their TVs for 24, 48 hours 
and they're overwhelmed with these graphic images. If you watched any of the coverage this weekend, and, and it was brutal. It was, it was actually very, the first wall-to-wall coverage for something like this over four days since uh, Virginia Tech. And that, that certainly implants and brainwashes these individuals in a way that the media doesn't want to look at. But one of the things that keeps coming out, of course, is this whole, um, oh, he was a nice boy, or he never bothered anyone, or I, I never talked to him. Well, if you think about it, if you actually put yourself in a position of thinking, how would you answer the media on that question? Would you say, oh, no, I had barbecue with this this guy all the time. Oh, we were drinking buddies. As soon as any individual like this is identified, all of society is going to isolate them. And so what the media does is they keep perpetrating this lone nut theory. So if, if this person did have friends, if it was a conspiracy, if there was any, even any connection to any of his research or his labs or to the, the fact that there was a, a military psych lab in that area, uh, we'll never really hear about it because the media is actually in cahoots with keeping these stories in the, the sphere of it's just a lone nut. Um, and, you know, you and I would definitely... Uh, we would want to reinforce that by saying, of course we didn't know this individual. Who would want to identify with a mass murderer? Exactly right. That's an interesting point. And, and certainly it does feed into a narrative that's been crafted over, at the very least, the last 48 years since the lone nut supposedly assassinated JFK in Dallas. And uh, and that's something that often plays into the authorities' hands in, in situations like this, where they want to, to always portray it as just one, one isolated individual. And it, it creates the question of how the media itself handles the question of its own role in all of this. As you say, there has been some coverage in Canadian uh, uh, press for, for years now about your work, including uh, one, for example, from Canada.com, Why Mad Men Set Their Sights on Schools, talking about the Dawson College shooting and the, uh, the spree of school shootings that were taking place at that time. But the American media seems quite uh, quiet about this, this, the possibility that they are somehow complicit in this, for obvious reasons, I suppose. But let's talk about their own refusal to look at this issue. Well, I think that uh, all you have to do is go back to Virginia Tech. And uh, here's an individual who set up a media uh, media guidebook, actually. He, he created videotapes, he did a manifesto, and he mailed it around to different media individuals. And uh, NBC decided to show the videos to give this guy uh, a platform from which to, to talk about his craziness. And I, I think that the media are really stooges in terms of thinking that we're going to understand anything by listening to a, a person that's mentally ill, uh, their comments, their, their platform, their, their thoughts and motives, because it's, it, it doesn't connect to any kind of reality. And yet, uh, what, what happened with them in a, uh, NBC was they really got themselves in a hole because they made a celebrity of the Virginia Tech killer. And for weeks afterwards, they were apologizing, they were saying they made a mistake, but it didn't really change because uh, they did it over and over again. That was Lauren Coleman 
the author of The Copycat Effect, a book that I do highly recommend. I think it is worth your time if you are at all interested in the subject. As I say, that book is packed with references and uh, examples of this phenomenon. And as you can see, I think Lauren Coleman has put a lot of thought into this and raises some very interesting points about the construction of lone nut shooter narratives, not only by the media simply reporting and regurgitating whatever they are told by the people in authority who are investigating any crime and who thus probably have the motive to actually cover up the real nature of that crime, but also because, as he says, when you are questioned after the fact, after you're, you've been told that this person went crazy and killed 52 people or whatever it was, you know what to say because you have seen that interview a million times. Well, he was the quiet person. He kept to himself. I didn't know him well, but he was a bit of a loner, a bit of a weirdo. What else are you going to say in that situation? In a way, we have been programmed to know how to respond to certain situations simply because we have seen it in the media so many times. And that is, I think, the important underlying point of this copycat effect phenomenon. So I will commend... Coleman's uh, book to your attention. Also, his Twilight Language blog at copycateffect.blogspot.com is, I note, still active and still being updated to this day. Um, for example, just uh, this past July, he had a post up connecting the July 4th uh, Chicago shooting to the Abe assassination and talking about copycat uh Twilight language involved in that. So very interesting stuff. I will also commend to your attention an interview that uh, James Evan Pilato of Media Monarchy did with Lauren Coleman back in 2016 on the creepy clowns phenomenon that was sweeping the United States at that time. Remember, during the selection year 2016, there was the creepy clown thing that was popping up all over the place and being reported in the media. Well, James and Pilato had a, a short talk with Lauren Coleman about that, so I will put that in the show notes as well at corbettreport.com slash media terror, so you can go investigate that. But I think one of the underlying points, one of the underlying points that we can take from this is that this is not at all a controversial or a strange idea, or I never knew that, or I never could have thought about that. No, of course, this is a well-documented phenomenon by this point. It is well understood, which is why it is incredibly, unbelievably, almost terroristically reckless for a media production company to go waltzing into this minefield of, oh, let's, let's do a show glorifying teenage suicide. What could go wrong? For example, um, we had this pop-up just a few years ago, you might recall, uh, the brouhaha that surrounded Netflix's, or is that Cutie Flix's, 13 Reasons Why, a show that, I confess, I have not watched, so I cannot speak about it in its detail, but I can talk about the way that it was reported on, what was reported about it, and how that story unfolded, with basically every, every person who had any sort of understanding of this field, who had researched it, blinking and flashing the siren, going, this is a bad idea, guys. This is a bad idea. So, for example, Netflix's 13 Reasons Why carries danger of glorifying suicide, experts say. Netflix's series 13 Reasons Why has been a critical success, but some mental health experts fear the show could glorify teen suicide for those on the edge. 
The show, released in full on March 31st, tells the story of teenager Hannah Baker's, played by Katherine Langford, suicide through audio tapes listened to by classmate Clay Jensen. Each tape details why Hannah blames specific people for her suicide. That, along with a myriad of other issues, including a disturbing scene graphically showing Hannah's suicide, Sorrows of Young Werther, anyone? Has mental health experts saying these series could be more harmful than helpful? Uh, again, around the same time, you have uh, this one. Psychologists warn 13 reasons why could inspire copycat suicides, with Harold S. Klopowitz of uh, the Child Mind Institute saying the show is remarkably dangerous, especially for younger audiences. It's not only the content, but the message it gives, which is that there is no help and that suicide is glamorous and effective, Koplowitz said. Uh, it's a false message, and it has a contagious effect. Exactly right. So... Well, what did happen? This was back in 2017. Did anything happen about that? Well, in 2018, we started to see the signs of that. So, for example, Pediatrics Perspectives published 13 Things Pediatricians Should Know and Do About 13 Reasons Why, where they note that this is a popular show about a teenager's suicide. Uh, The show remains available for viewing, and a second season is forthcoming. Mental health advocates have raised concern about the show's potential impact. There is precedent for the concern. There are evidence-based practices to guide media portrayals of suicide, which this show is not following. The show's release was associated with a spike in online searches about suicide. We have found that pediatric patients are referencing the show when presenting to our health system. Again, flashing the big red warning sign. This is not a good idea, guys. At the very least, we recommend vulnerable patients avoid watching the show. How did that play out? April 2019, uh, the Journal of uh, American Academy of Child Adolescent Psychiatry had this article, Association Between the Release of Netflix's 13 Reasons Why and Suicide Rates in the United States, an Interrupted Time Series Analysis, which shows in the results after accounting for seasonal effects and an underlying increasing trend in monthly suicide rates, the overall suicide rate among 10 to 17-year-olds increased significantly in the month immediately following the release of 13 Reasons Why. Conclusion, the release of 13 Reasons Why was associated with a significant increase in monthly suicide rates among U.S. youth aged 10 to 17 years. Caution regarding the exposure of children and adolescents to the series is warranted. And so immediately, so this comes out in April, Netflix tries to deflect for a month or two, but oh, in the end, they finally concede in July of 2019, three months after. It's definitively proven that, yes, this show did cause an increase in suicides. Netflix removes the 13 reasons why controversial suicide scene. So that scene was removed two years later after, of course, it had already had its effect and many children had died as a result of it. But don't worry, guys, they're not liable because uh, judge rules in Netflix's favor over 13 reasons why suicide lawsuit from January of this year. I'm talking about the parents of a girl who did commit suicide after watching the series, um, took took it to court. They filed a class action lawsuit against Netflix uh, to claim that his daughter Bella died as a result of the tortious acts and omissions of Netflix that caused or at least substantially contributed to her April 2017 suicide, according to court documents. But on Tuesday, U.S. District Court uh, U.S. District Judge Yvonne Gonzalez Rogers ruled in favor of Netflix with the support of the First Amendment right to freedom of speech. And there she is. 
one of the victims of this series. How anyone associated with this series could sleep well at night knowing about the people who were driven over the edge. Does one television show or one video game or one song is that the reason that people commit suicide and they they are the prime and sole responsibility? Of course not. But people who are on the edge can be driven over that edge by the media. It is an incredible responsibility not to be taken lightly. And to be clear, very clear on this, no, I do not think that media producers should be sued over their television shows. It is First Amendment. It is freedom of expression. But they went into this absolutely knowing and being told over and over and over that this was going to cause an increase in suicides and it caused an increase in suicides. Um, this is this is not a game. This is not to be taken lightly. Media has an incredibly powerful effect in shaping our lives. And that is precisely why we need to go one step even deeper because this isn't about the media being simply this vehicle for portraying things that then certain people who are already vulnerable take it the wrong way and they, they go out and act those things out in real life. It's not just that, although it is that, as we have seen. But it's even more fundamental of a relationship between media and terrorism. Because in the final analysis, terrorism in the modern age is a media phenomenon. Terrorism as we know it would not exist without mass media. The point of terrorism is essentially propaganda of the deed, as it was referred to a century plus ago. It is by uh, trying to spread a message by some big, violent, expressive action that will then be reported on ad nauseum in the coming days. Terrorists of all stripes and varieties, whether lone nut shooters or terrorists of a more spectacular variety, know this relationship. They exploit this relationship. The media are it is an essential ingredient in any act of terrorism in the modern age. And no better example of that, I think, can be found than what we saw unfold on our television screens on September 11th, 2001. What are your future plans? You'll see them and hear about them in the media. God willing. What about collateral damage to other buildings in the area? Those, those of course, are the classic canyons of Lower Manhattan. And as that, as that building came down, it did create a kind of tornadic wind that went through there. Absolutely. Much like uh, the images that were created for the movie Independence Day. Yes, there is some sort of 9-11 media connection there, isn't there? Yeah, that's no tangential thing. That is a fundamental part of what 9-11 was at base. What was 9-11? How did you experience it? I don't know about you, but myself, personally, of course, I experienced 9-11 as a mediated event. And like most people in the world, hundreds of millions of people around the world, and probably most of the people in this audience, the only way you experienced 9-11 was as a mediated event, unless you were actually there witnessing one of these uh, events happening. 
And even then, you're only seeing one perspective of one bit of what was going on on that day, right? Everything else that you know about it is coming through the media. And in the case of most people, it was just on the TV screens. Hundreds of millions of people around the world watched those events unfold as a media spectacle. Again, that is not a tangential thing. That is not some sort of side point to this. No, it was designed as a media spectacle. Now, this was a key point that I did try to stress towards the end of Lesson 2 of the Mass Media A History online course. As I say, that was the way a lot of people understood, received, internalized, digested the events of September 11, 2001. And I don't think, again, for people who are not particularly philosophically inclined and are inclined to think, well, so what? I would just invite you to think about the nature of an event like 9-11 and how it was almost universally described at the time as, wow, this is like something out of a movie. Yes. Yes, it is. Precisely because, I mean, even if we swallow look, hook, line, and sinker, absolutely everything about official story and Al-Sayyida and everything, even so, yes, the terrorists, whoever the terrorists happen to be, planned it as an event that could that could be seen, that would be watched, that would be experienced in that moment as an unfolding adventure, drama, movie. We've seen this a million times, haven't we? We know what this looks like. So we can understand that and it will resonate in our consciousness. I definitely do believe that the terrorists definitely wanted it to unfold like a movie. Who are the terrorists? That's the real question. But anyway, um, so what would a 9-11 have looked like, and by which I mean been experienced, in a pre-printing press era. I mean, assuming we could imagine in a pre-printing press era, the New York City and airplanes and skyscrapers and what have you, which we couldn't, by the way, it would not have been possible in a pre-printing press era. But anyway, assuming that existed somewhere, however many dozens, hundreds, thousands of miles away in some city called New York that I presumably would never have seen in my life. And there was some sort of major event that happened there and all this stuff happened. And eventually some horse buggy would carry it to me on some, you know, some town crier would read it out to the people or something. Uh, would, would that possibly have the consciousness shaping effect that it did on live TV being broadcast to millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people around the world? Of course not. Of course not. This type of mass consciousness is only possible in mass media era. And so what would that have looked like even in the newspaper era? What would that have looked like in the telegraph era, in the radio era? It was a TV. It was a TV event in every sense. And I think we have to understand it as such. Once again, that was a clip from Mass Media A History, the online course, the three-lecture, six-hour uh, online course that is available at newworldnextweek.com. If you are interested in the subject of media and you have not taken that course yet, what are you doing? Even if you're not explicitly so interested in the subject of media, if you're interested in the things that I talk about at the Corbett Report, I think it is worth your time. And that is one small clip from that course in which I was specifically talking and hitting on the point that we have to see that 9-11 is not even conceivable in a non-mediated world, without mass media at all, what would even be the point of doing something like 9-11? If 
a skyscraper pulverizes in the forest and no one is there to record it, did it happen at all, um, is kind of the question. And so I think we have to understand that there is something very deep going on here with regards to the mediated nature of terrorism in in general and September 11th, 2001 in particular. And so for the second time in four podcast episodes, which is a pretty good batting, uh, batting average, uh, we're going to turn to a, uh, an article by Graeme McQueen. Uh, this time, it was uh, released in 2017. It's called September 11, The Pentagon's B-Movie. It's a very interesting article. Of course, it will be in the show notes so that you can go and read through the entire article. But let's just take a look at some of the highlights here. Literally, highlights on screen if you're watching the video version of this podcast. And I like how Graham McQueen starts by stating the obvious up front for the heart of thinking. The events that took place in the United States on September 11th, 2001 were real and they were extremely violent. As David Griffin has sh- recently shown in detail, they also had catastrophic real-life consequences for both the United States and the world. But these events were also deeply filmic, like a film, and they were presented to us through a narrative we now know to be fictional. This 9-11 movie reveals itself to careful investigators as scripted, directed, and produced by the U.S. national security state. The movie does not represent the real world. It violates the rules operative in the real world, including the laws of physics. Audiences will remain enthralled to the spectacle and violence of the war on terror only as long as they remain mesmerized by the B-movie of 9-11. And he goes on to talk about the filmic nature of the September 11th events, specifically quoting Lawrence Wright, who he notes here was the screenwriter of The Siege, which is an interesting movie, perhaps fodder for a future film literature in the New World Order, if I ever do that series again. Um, But people who don't know, look it up. The Siege, I think a 1998 film. Um, Yes, he was the screenwriter of that. And he said, it was about an hour after the first Trade Center came down that I began to make the connection with the movie. This haunting feeling at the beginning, this looks like a movie. And then I thought, it looks like my movie. An interesting statement, especially coming from Lawrence Wright, who, what else did he do? He was the screenwriter of The Siege. Oh, that's right. He also wrote The Looming Tower, Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11, which won the Pulitzer and is uh, held up as one of the most important books about 9-11 and Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11 and all that. Um, Has been made into a TV miniseries and all the rest. And there's an interesting little little tidbit that he reveals on page 343 of this edition of The Looming Tower, in which he's talking about the uh, Afghanistan training camps that Al-Qaeda had set up in the 1990s and how they operated and the types of activities that the trainees went through there. And just in one little tidbit, he notes that talking about, oh, well, they they read certain, they had a library of military books, um, of uh, talking about the the autobiography of an Israeli terrorist, for example, or a uh, a book on the establishment of the U.S. Marine Rapid Deployment Force, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, getting ideas and tips and strategies and things from books like that. But also, quote, at night, they would often watch Hollywood thrillers looking for tips. The movies of Arnold Schwarzenegger were particular favorites. So there you go. Even in the training camps of the Al-Qaeda fearsome boogeyman enemy, they're watching Arnold Schwarzenegger 80s action flicks for ideas. Supposedly. Anyway. 
Interesting. So, yeah, I think Lawrence Wright does have something to say on this subject. But moving along with the Gray McQueen article, he uh, talks about Steve D'Souza, the screenwriter for Die Hard 1 and 2, uh, who said, well, it did look like a movie. It looked like a movie poster. It looked like one of my movie posters. And presumably he's probably talking about the Die Hard movie poster scene here with the exploding tower. So, yes. Indeed. So is there something more to this? Well, uh, I like the way that uh, Gray McQueen breaks this down in a very, very logical way. He says, The 9-11 attacks were filmic in at least the following ways. Given the complex and coordinated nature of these attacks, they had been scripted and given a timeline in advance. Again, that's completely uncontroversial, no matter what you believe about who the real terrorists were. Yes, everyone knows there there were certain events that were meant to happen in a certain order to produce a certain effect. Given the need to make decisions as the attacks progressed, for example, when an aircraft went off course or was delayed, it is clear that there was a director. Given the overall vision, the need for funds, resources, and international coordination over a period of years, it is obvious that there had been a producer. Given the numerous roles played in this event, for example, by the hijackers, there were undoubtedly actors. In addition, the event included the key dramatic elements of conflict, violence, and spectacle. The entire production was filmed from several angles, and the films, sometimes in the rough and sometimes cleverly edited, were shown many, many times all over the world. Now here is a fascinating tidbit. Official U.S. sources rapidly acknowledged the remarkably filmic nature of these events. In October 2001, some two dozen Hollywood writers and directors were assembled to brainstorm with Pentagon advisors and officials in an, anon- in an anonymous building in L.A. The Army's Institute for Creative Technologies was the lead organization. The assembled group was assumed to have relevant expertise and was asked to brainstorm about what future attacks might look like so that the Pentagon could be prepared. We want some left-field, off-the-wall ideas. Say the craziest thing that comes into your mind said the Pentagon war planner. What a crazy little tidbit. And as he notes, reporters have tried and failed to issue issue FOIAs to get more information about those meetings that were furtively reported on in the media, but that's all we got out of them. It's just a little tidbit here and there. What, What did they really talk about? What ideas did they come up with? And how were they incorporated into Pentagon war plans? Purely defensively, of course. Hey guys, give us some more ideas. I mean, uh, we have to be prepared for what Al-Qaeda might do next. Fascinating little tidbit right there. Um, But then he goes on to talk about, presumably, at least the official cover for this was, oh, of course, it's because 9-11 was a failure of imagination. The, The stodgy Pentagon bureaucrats just couldn't think up something so amazingly crazy as 9-11. So they they were caught flat-footed. I mean, as we know, as the commander-in-chief himself, President George W. said, no one could have thought of taking planes and slamming them into buildings, except every single one of those agencies that did exactly that in its various uh, exercises and war games that I've talked about many times, perhaps most notably in 9-11 war games, available for free at corporatereport.com slash 911 war games. Um, and Gray McQueen does go through all of that and and dissects that lie. Actually, I uh, heard an interview with Gray McQueen about this topic on Freedom Loves Company podcast, where he noted that the failure of imagination is not the 
the U.S. bureaucracy or Pentagon or the the White House or the administration or the national security states failure to imagine that Osama bin Laden and his henchmen could be so dastardly. No, the failure of imagination is the public's failure of imagination to understand how such an event could be constructed and helped along and perpetrated by people in key positions to defend the United States. Oops, this one got through, precisely so that they could carry on with their agenda. That's the real failure of imagination here, and it's a it's a good point worth making. Um, but as I say, he goes through that and, and talks about the many, many times where this failure of imagination obviously did not take place. But then he gets back to the point, not just 9-11 was not just filmic, but exclusively filmic. And here he makes a stunning point from the um, the uh, recorded testimony of the fire department of New York officers and first responders who were debriefed uh, shortly after 9-11 that was eventually published, I believe, by the New York Times in 2006 or whenever it was finally published. Um, and he, he notes having poured through them as he's done work on this before, academic work. Um, but he, he notes here how many times people talk about specifically the filmic nature of the events they were experiencing. For example, EMS chief Walter Kowalczyk, uh, I thought I was at an event at Universal Studios on the side watching a movie being taped. Or EMT Peter Katia, um, talking about a second plane, just went into the second tower. We ran out and we saw the second plane. It was like watching a movie. It really was. And it goes on and on. Chief Steve Graber looked like a movie, or EMT Michael Mejias. Uh, I thought I was watching a movie with special effects. I've seen this in a movie. Something like when I was a kid and I saw Godzilla in the movies. It was like a movie set, like a Godzilla movie, like out of a movie, just like a movie. The movie Armageddon, like it was a Godzilla movie. Um, like that movie The Day After with the atomic bomb. Um, you would see these movies like a tidal wave that flows through the streets. So, yes, in one sense, this is not... This is not some big revelation of anything. Of course, of course people would see these catastrophic scenes taking place in this in iconic urban area and equate it with the many, many, many times they have seen catastrophic scenes in this urban area in the movies. Of course, it is the template for this in every sense, which is exactly, in fact, it, it's such a obvious truism that almost everyone who saw that unfolding live would have immediately seen this is like a movie this is like a movie it would almost be odd if they didn't think that which again speaks to how powerfully programmed we are by the media that we are consuming largely without even thinking about it but as Gray McQueen goes on, he makes another good point here. Since at least as early as 1902, when the French film A Trip to the Moon, Le Voyage dans la Lune, took its viewers into space, audiences have been enjoying the ability of movies to deliver dramatic action through special effects, and especially by suspending, fictionally, the laws of physics. This is part of the power of film, and there's nothing inherently wrong with it. But it is important to know when we are in the theater and when we are not. Very, uh, uh, very meta point there, almost uh, like it's coming straight from um, a philosophical treatise. Uh, in the original 1933 film, King Kong, director Marion Cooper was determined to make the appearance of the, his monster dramatically powerful, and to this end was prepared to change the monster's size repeatedly to fit particular scenes. 
And he talks about uh, how King Kong is different in almost every shot. Sometimes he's only 18 feet tall and sometimes 60 feet or larger, whatever, whatever the scene demanded. Uh, Cooper understood what mattered in a movie. But imagine what would happen if audiences remained convinced by the suspension of the laws of physics after they left the theater. This, it seems to me, is what happened with the events of September 11, 2001. Many people are still deceived by the special effects. They are still captured by the movie of 9-11. And then wrapping it up towards the end, uh, again, there's a lot of good detail in here, but I'll, I'll uh, exhort you to go read that on your own time. But here at the very end, he summarizes by talking about our challenge. In the 1958 trailer for the B-movie, The Blob, filmgoers are shown sitting in a theater as a horror movie begins. They are frightened but only in the distant way that film audiences allow themselves to feel frightened by fictional representations. Then we notice the monster, the blob, oozing into the theater itself. As the moviegoers wake up to this reality and sense the real danger, they tear their eyes from the screen and run from the theater. As audiences today watch the war on terror, hypnotized by the extremist evildoers, A pitiless oligarchy creeps unseen into the room. Our challenge is to break the spell of the B-movie of 9-11. Only when people sense the genuine danger and leave behind fiction and special effects will they be in a position to deal with the real monster that confronts us. Well said. Um, Once again, hats off to Gray McQueen for this article. I think it says a lot of important things. And absolutely. We have to go back to the real question. Who was the real terrorist? Who was the real director of the 9-11 movie? Was it? Was it Osama bin Laden? Just dreamt it all all by himself? No, no, no. You don't understand. It was Khalid Sheikh Mohammed who came up with the plane's operation and he sold it to Osama bin Laden. Or was this something that was thought out in advance by other parties? Again, I think the answer should be obvious to people who have spent time examining those events, but the point here today is actually a greater one than simply what happened on 9-11 being a media event. I think it was, demonstrably so. Again, whatever you think about 9-11, demonstrably, it was a mediated event. But, again, it's the nature of terrorism itself to be a spectacle. Terrorism, as we understand it in the modern world, would not exist without the complicity of the media broadcasting that terror out to the public and terrorizing the public for the terrorists, whoever they may be. Again, this is not a controversial point. This is well-documented, well-understood. It's been written about and talked about and observed and critiqued and analyzed for decades and decades. So just like the copycat effect that we were talking about earlier, and specifically with suicides, but many other types of ideas, memes that get inserted into the zeitgeist. And I should parenthetically note that Lauren Coleman has a little bit about 9-11 and uh, some of the copycat precursors to the 9-11 attacks that may have seeded that idea in the popular imagination before the attacks occurred. Not, not talking about movies, but talking about real events that took place and some that people might not even remember or know about. Um, again, I will refer you back to the Copycat Effect book. But just like that case where, again, that's a very well-understood, well-documented phenomenon, and yet still the media will continue to come out with 13 reasons why and whatever else, knowing full well it will result in people dying. You know, can't can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, huh? Uh, in the exact same way, once again, this connection between terror and media is not 
It's not like this is mystical stuff that no one's ever thought about before. Oh yeah, people have thought about it. Like our good friends at the Rand Corporation. Rand.org, you can go there right now and read this this little doozy, The Psychological Implications of Media-Covered Terrorism, which was originally penned in 1981, but is available for reading there at rand.org. So just reading from the opening here, The Psychological Implications of Media-Covered Terrorism by Brian Michael Jenkins, the Rand Corporation, Santa Monica, California. In the age of mass communications, the role of the news media cannot be separated from the acts of terrorism. To talk about the psychological effects of terrorism is to talk about the psychological effects of terrorism as reported by the news media. Terrorism is aimed at the people watching by carrying out inherently dramatic, deliberately shocking acts of violence. Terrorists hope to attract attention to their causes and project themselves as forces to be reckoned with. To reach their audience, terrorists depend on the news media. This sometimes puts the news media in the uncomfortable role of appearing to be an accomplice to the terrorist and has led to allegations that by their reporting, the media exaggerate the problem of terrorism, spread alarm, and provoke overreaction, aggrandize and romanticize the terrorists, even bestow a degree of legitimacy upon them, and inspire others to become terrorists. A closer examination of these assertions shows some of them to be at least partially correct. (laughs) But some surprises also appear. Anyway, I'll let you continue reading through this. Um, This is just one example. There are many, many, many papers that have been written on this and lectures that have been delivered at conferences. Again, going back decades and decades, the connection between media and terrorism is one that has been pointed out. And as as, uh, Jenkins is implying here in this particular piece. Yes. It, again, it puts it puts the news media in the uncomfortable position of being accomplices to the terrorists, perhaps even being the real terrorists. Exactly as is the point of this podcast. So, given all of that, given that we know this connection and given we know that a terrorist without any media coverage of their spectacular acts of terror would not be a terrorist. They would terrorize no one except maybe people in the actual vicinity who literally physically saw that event take place and knew what it was about. Well, then what do we make of a confession like this? Now, as leaders, we have never treated the weapons of old in the same way as those that have emerged. And that's understandable. After all, a bullet takes a life. A bomb takes out a whole village. A lie online or from a podium does not. But what if that lie, told repeatedly and across many platforms, prompts, inspires or motivates others to take up arms, to threaten the security of others, to turn a blind eye to atrocities or worse, to become complicit in them? What then? This is no longer a hypothetical. The weapons of war have changed. They are upon us and require the same level of action and activity that we put into the weapons of old. We recognise the threats that the old weapons created. We came together as communities to minimise these threats. We created international rules, norms and expectations. We never saw that as a threat to our individual liberties. Rather, it was a preservation of them. The same must apply now as we take on these new challenges. That, as I'm sure you know, was Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, and you will probably recognize that as her speech to the UN General Assembly 
from earlier this year because it did get some media attention, even in alt-media circles. But I called it a confession because I think that's exactly what it is. How else do we interpret it, given in the light of what we have looked at today, in light of what we now can underline and document and say with certainty about media being a terroristic vehicle when it is used as such, how else do we interpret that confession of one of the terrorists who wants to terrorize the population with disinformation, misinformation, lies told repeatedly across many media platforms? And that will be used to prompt and inspire and motivate others to take up arms, to threaten the security of others, to turn a blind eye to atrocities or worse, to become complicit in them, as Ardern said, right? Exactly. Exactly right. So, again, we, we, we know that script. We've seen it. Remember back in 2002, 2003, when the me media pretty much unanimously became cheerleaders for the Iraq war. We've got to get them, guys. Rallying the people to get on board with the war agenda, to take up arms and to commit atrocities and to turn a blind eye to those atrocities. Remember that? A million dead Iraqis on the hands of the media and, of course, the politicians that were featured prominently lying in the news media. That That's what we're talking about, right? Or... Or when the media incessantly covers every school shooting, even though they know that that will cause more school shootings. They know this to be the case. The copycat effect is real. It is documented. It is well understood. But they continue to do it. That's the type of lying and misinformation and inciting others to commit terror that Ardern is talking about. Right? That's what we need to be banning and finding ways to censor online. The mainstream news that is repeating the talking points of the government terrorists, right? Oh, no, I think that's probably not what she was talking about. No, of course, uh, this actually swirls around the real point. Once again, it's one of those points that we don't see because it is so obviously there that we can't see it. But here is the point. If they did not want to, if, if they did not want to gin up a war on terror and to make the terrorists into these world-bestriding colossus capable of striking down the civilization of the West and all of this, then they wouldn't have talked about them incessantly for years and focused all of the attention on them all the time. And we can say that definitively because we have historical templates for exactly what happens when you don't talk about and you don't shine the media spotlight on spectacular acts of terrorism. And there's a reason why you don't do that. A again, have we forgotten all about this? Well, you can, you can re-remember some of it with this article, The Bombings of America, that we forgot. Because, yeah, you might have forgotten or never known that there were a, a string of terrorist bombings taking place in the United States in the 1970s that got little to no media attention, for a number of reasons, which we can examine, but let's just read about it. Today, 15 years after the 9-11 attacks, the explosion of a bomb remains a very big deal in this country. Detonating even the simplest pipe bomb, whether the work of some fringe militant group or a unabomber like Kook, can draw the attentions of literally hundreds of journalists, photographers, and law enforcement personnel, not to mention the, the not to mention rivet the rest of the country, all right, whatever you're saying, time. 
as has been the case with the weekend's casualty-free the, the casualty-free bombings in New York and New Jersey. And you might be out there think, thinking to yourself, what bombings in New York and New Jersey are you talking about? And that's that's kind of the point, yeah. The, these things that were mass media spectacles there in September of 2016. What? What? I don't even remember that. What happened? It may be hard to recall now, but there was a time when most Americans were decidedly more blasé about bombing attacks. This was during the 1970s when protest bombings in America were commonplace, especially in hard-hit circles cities like New York, Chicago, and San Francisco. Nearly a dozen radical underground groups, dimly remembered outfits such as the Weather Underground, the New World Liberation Front, and the Symbionese Liberation Army set off hundreds of bombs during that tumultuous decade. So many, in fact, that many people all but accepted them as part of daily life. As one woman sniffed to, to a New York Post reporter after an attack by a Puerto Rican independence group in 1977. Oh, another bombing? Who is it this time? And it goes through, again, this history, this largely forgotten history of the tumultuous 70s, uh, to conclude, why do we recall so little of this? It's a good question. Conservatives say it's because the liberal media wanted to let the radicals off easy. Yeah, weather underground, uh, terror, uh, whatever. Let's let's give them awards years later. It's also possible that as a people, we only remember the events we want to. Yet another possibility is that the violence of the 1970s was forgotten in large part because none of the participants, both the leftists facing prison and the authorities who chased them in vain all those years, had much incentive to make us remember. With no one telling the story... The story melted away. Wow, what a profound point that is, isn't it? Without, with no one telling the story, the story melted away. Exactly right. Yes, because, again, if your interest is in suppressing this sort of thing, you do not talk about it, dwell on it, make it into the front page thing that everyone has in front, in front and center as the most important thing in the world all the time. But... If they are doing that, as they demonstrably were with the War of Terror for year after year after year, the most important thing in the world is whatever this Osama bin Laden guy is cooking up in his cave fortress in Afghanistan, whatever, booga booga, scare, get scared, guys. And that was, that was people's pressing concern. Although you were more likely to die from a bumblebee flying out of a shark's mouth than you were a terrorist, whatever. <laughs> Those types of uh, statistical uh, comparisons that have been made. But point taken, right? Yeah, you, you're you probably not going to die in a spectacular terrorist attack. Um, and even if you did, who are the real terrorists? But anyway, why was that the front and center most important thing on everyone's mind for year after year after year? Why, in 2020, did it suddenly become all COVID all the time. And the only thing we can think of as a species is COVID. This is the civilization-defining event of world history. Wait, what's that? Oh, Ukraine? Okay, flying flags, flying flags. Oh, okay, that's getting boring. Let's try something else. It's crazy to watch. But there is a point. There is a point there. With no one telling the story, the story melts away. How about no one watching the story? As Gray McQueen makes as the point at the end of his article. And I think he says it well, so I will repeat it here by way of sign-off. This is James Corbett of CorporateReport.com, and these are the parting words from Graeme McQueen. 
As audiences today watch the war on terror hypnotized by the extremist evildoers, a pitiless oligarchy creeps unseen into the room. Our challenge is to break the spell of the B-movie of 9-11. Only when people sense the genuine danger and leave behind fiction and special effects will they be in a position to deal with the real monster that confronts us. Turn off your TV, folks. You heard it here first. James Corbett, CorbettReport.com.